Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ and then to be sanctuary to each other and express sanctuary to this city. And so for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. So uh, it's been a few weeks since we have been uh, back into, you know, since we've been in in our series on Gideon uh, in uh, the book of Judges. And uh, so we're going to dive back in. We've been doing some equipping sessions. We've been doing some socials. We did a Mother's Day sermon, but it's been a few weeks. So I think it was all the way back at the park. in Golden Gate the last time we were there. So I thought it'd be good. I want this to be uh, somewhat interactive. Hopefully you're okay raising your voice, chiming in. Um, so before that, I mean, could anyone uh, just, just to get, get it back into the story a bit, to remember, you know, the last three messages on Gideon, where we have been. Um, can anyone remind me, remind us, uh, where the Israelites find themselves when we first meet Gideon in Judges chapter 6. What's happening to the Israelites? They're hiding in caves. Hiding in caves. Yeah. yeah. Why are they hiding in caves? Midianites. Midianites. They pushed them into their, like, and they stole all their stuff and took their crops. Yeah. They stole That's exactly right. You know, they were hiding their livestock. They couldn't plant uh, any, any, uh, any, oh man, um, Crops because they would be stolen, right? And so, yeah, Gideon's hiding the Israelites. Why? Why was Midian in the land? Why were the Midianites coming and raiding? Judgment. Judgment. What do you mean by that? They forgot who they were worshiping, and the Lord let them come. And George, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This is awesome. No, no, exactly. It says they turned their eyes. From the Lord. And so the Lord actually allowed the Midianites. And this is kind of a pattern we see through Israel's history, specifically in the Judges. What did God do, though? After seven years of being raided and raided and raided, what, what happened? Yes! Beautiful, Phil. God heard their cry after seven years. Actually, I think this is the first recorded time in Israel's history where a prophet is sent. This starts a long trajectory in their history. But yeah, they, they call out to the Lord, or in a prophet's sent, and then an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, right? And what, what happens in that scene? How is Gideon? Is he, is he triumphant? Is he ready to hear what the angel says? No. Down in a wine press. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Which I've never threshed wheat before. I don't know. You may know this, but apparently you don't do that in a wine press. It's apparently, it's very hard, unless you're trying to hide. He didn't believe. Yeah, Jesse talked about this a lot. He was he was actually very frank and honest with this angel, right? What what excuses? What what did he say when the angel called upon him? He was skeptical. He was skeptical. Something like, if, you, if you're so good, why are all these bad things happening to us? Whew, that's a tough question, right? 
Anyone asking that this season? Yeah. The angel called him to do something. He said, actually, I'm going to raise you up, Gideon. And you're going to take on the Midianites. You're going to lead my people out. I'm going to rescue. And he didn't believe God. In fact, he said, I'm the weakest, right? I'm the weakest in my tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. Like, I can't use it. I can't be used by God. And yet God said God was patient with him, right? So can anyone remember, and then we'll pick up on our story, what happened after Gideon uh, received this message from God and wasn't, didn't believe it. What did God do to help Gideon along? Yes. Yes. So he said, Gideon says, wait, wait a second. All right. You stay there. If you're really God, you stay there. I want to be gone for a bit. And he goes and gets a bunch of meat. He actually butchers one of his animals. He gets flour. So he's probably gone for a while, right? He's probably maybe taking his time on purpose, but he shows back up. God's still there. All right. This angel, at least the angel of the Lord. He says, all right, I want you to put, pour all the broth on the sacrifice. So you got to basically like a bunch of wet meat and a, wet, and a bunch of wet bread, a bunch of wet flour. And all of a sudden, fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice. Okay, God, you got my attention. I guess I believe you. Right after that is where our text picks up, right? So picture that. I mean, she just had this incredible encounter with the angel of the Lord. And then we come here. So I'm going to read it. And I just want you with your mind's eye to pat, what is going on here? Imagine if you were Gideon, what would you be feeling? How would you interact with this? Uh, so we're going to be in Judges Chapter 6, verse 25 through 32. I'm going to read out of the ESV. It's going to be on your screen as well. Um, that night, that very night that the, 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 the fire was brought, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah pole that is beside it, the Asherah, the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here. With stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering. With the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it. By night. When the men of the town arose early in the next morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah pole it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he might die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. 
That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Can I pray for us? Father, we just thank you for this word. We thank you for this story. We just pray, would you open our hearts? Would you speak? Father, I just pray that you would find soft soil in our hearts. And I pray that this ancient story would teach us something here in 2021, overlooking the bay in San Francisco that you have for us in this time. Yeah, Father, speak. Amen. Thank you. By the way, wonderful view, right? <laughs> I've got a better view than you. Sorry. Uh, all right. So as, we, as I read that and as we, we, we let the word of God kind of pour over us, and what did you notice? Just really big, mighty things, really silly things, questions that you have. What did you notice about that story? God put Gideon to the test. Yeah. Gideon in the last, right before, put God to the test. I'm going to test you. No, actually, God turned the tables. Yeah, great insight. I noticed Gideon was still afraid. And I was, yeah. like, resonating with that. Versus, like, oh, still like Gideon, come on. I was like, oh, man, I see myself in that. Yeah. Yeah, the one emotion inscribed in this whole passage is fear. Mm-hmm. And God let him be angry at or questioning him. Yeah. And he, he didn't reject Gideon because Gideon's faith wasn't strong. He just brought him along and he grew him up, so to speak. Yeah. Strengthened him through that time of trial. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Time and time again in this passage, it's a great observation. God actually like this, like comes, keeps coming after Gideon. Right after this, it's going to be the passage about the fleeces, you know. Give me two more signs, God. And, you know, sometimes we're taught like, oh, this is how you discern God's will. Like throw out a fleece. But it's actually like, oh, like God, like God has to keep coming after Gideon again and again. He, he meets him where he's at. Absolutely. And Jesus does that with us today. Oh, man. Yeah, Absolutely. Anything else? Any other questions? Details that are confusing or just interesting? Anyone notice? Or go, go ahead. It's interesting that he was tearing down his father's. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just the altar. It's your father's altar. Yeah, the rest of the town gave it to Oh, Yeah. No wonder he was afraid, right? <laughs> right? He, didn't want, didn't want, he wanted to do it by night, and he had good reason. The townspeople wanted to kill him. Yeah, go ahead. Um, he took his father's bull. Yeah. Took his father's bull. Took his father's bull on his father's altar. And Ooh. then the second bull is seven years old, and I was just remembering many nights have been pillaging him for seven years. Oh, so yeah. He picked it up. Off. Yeah. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. That's so good. Well done. Yeah, that second bull. It's actually, it's a little confusing. A lot of commentators actually think it's one bull, but it's like the second oldest bull um, that was probably the healthiest. It was seven years, 
which the Midianites had been pillaging the land for seven years. Interesting. Some commentators even tie the second bull. This is getting really nerdy here to the second Adam, that concept of the second Adam. I mean, this is the bull that was going to, well, just to jump ahead a little bit, going to ram down the altar, going to tear down the Asherah pole and then be sacrificed on it. He's the destroyer of the altar or the, the idol, but also the sacrifice that's offered on it. The lion that destroys and the lamb that's sacrificed. Seven years from all the, the and it also the, the seven years too is significant. Like, like that bull was there from the very beginning. There was always a plan. He was always provided for from the beginning. Yeah, great, great pickup. Yeah, so fascinating. I mean, imagine, I don't know, if your dad was famous in the town, you know, had rallied everyone around. Maybe he owned a business. And God tells you to take a bat to the center of town and start like whacking at that business. You know, you were probably raised up in this idol-worshipping family. I mean, and family is so important in our day, but in that day, it's even bigger. It's like the end, of, like it's the most important thing. Like God is asking him. I mean, I don't know. I would imagine God asking him to do this task is actually more frightening than God asking him to go face the Midianites. Because at least when he faces the Midianites, everyone knows it's an enemy. But here, he's tackling his own people. Interesting. Great. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to try to just uh, dissect a little bit um, today, and uh, we'll see where it gets us. Um, but that's awesome. Keep it up. There will be more questions throughout. Well done. This is good. Um, so if you go to the next slide, um, I think just to frame up everything in Gideon, I don't know if you can see that, but I'll, I'll try to uh, call it out. So there's, when you think of the story of Gideon, even before you study it, there's probably a couple things that come to mind couple of scenes. One, hiding in the cave with God coming and saying, you mighty man of valor, you know, and, and, and Gideon's shame and fear. That's actually what that's, what is that? That's God giving Gideon identity. He finds him where he's at. He's hiding in a cave in a wine press and God's speaking identity to him. You know, again, Jesse had a great message and then, and then Josie with the kids talking about the shame that we have to deal with. But God's speaking identity over us. And then, then you go ahead and then you might think about the fleece incident that I already rest, uh, mentioned. Or, the, you know, the battle, uh, if you are at all familiar with the text, basically God whittles down the army. He takes 32,000 people to go fight the Midianites. And God says, ah, let's whittle it down to 10,000. Long story. Then it whittles it down to 300. So he's got to face this huge army with only 300 people. And, uh, and miraculous victory, he doesn't even have to... Pull, pick up a sword, and God delivers him. But those are the two incidents, right? There, there's this identity, speaking identity over, and then this big, crazy calling over Gideon's life. You're going to go lead the Israelites to face the Midianites. But this story is sandwiched right in the middle. And uh, I think this is Gideon's preparation. I think, Phil, you mentioned test or someone? No, uh, maybe it was... Uh, Victor mentioned test. Preparation is kind of a positive word, but this might be a testing or a cleansing. And I think this is a pattern we see a lot in Scripture, right? I mean, even Jesus, uh, when he was baptized, the Father spoke, well done, this is my, my um, uh, beloved Son uh, in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus hasn't done a thing yet in his ministry. And the first thing the Father does is speak his pleasure 
over Jesus. And then he's going to begin his calling and his ministry. But actually before that, what happens? The wilderness, 40 days. You you think about Paul, the road to Damascus. He is called by God. And then he's going to start his ministry. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. But actually there's one line that we learned in Scripture, one verse, that before that happened, he had three years in Arabia being discipled by Jesus. When you think about the disciples, they were called, I'm going to make you fishers of men, identity. And then the great commission, right? Go and make disciples, start my church. In the middle, three years being discipled by Jesus. It's just a time of preparation, of testing. And I just thought it was interesting, the season that we're in, Sanctuary Church, right? In fact, I was thinking over like what we've studied over the last couple of years, or really year and a half since COVID started. I mean, remember we went through that series in Ephesians 1, which is amazing. Who do you think you are? Studying about identity, who God has made us to be. The four boxes, remember those? And then we went into like emotional health, and like really going deep into our past, what are the lies of a, our identity that we need to strip? You know, and even in Gideon so far, we've been reminding ourselves, we are, we are mighty men and women of valor. And we know we've got a big calling, right? Like, that's why you're here. We're here to see this like reproducing, life-giving church planted in San Francisco. Huge calling on our lives. And at some point... You know, we're going to have to go a little bit more public with this. You know, we've been before COVID. We talked about this like pregnancy period. A lot's happening, but it's still kind of hidden and we're getting our DNAs and cultures that. But we're looking forward to a time where the sanctuary that we've been able to experience, like we can extend to this great city. But I, I wonder if God is saying, hey, there is a season right now and I don't want you to miss it, that it's preparation. Maybe a testing, maybe a cleansing, maybe a a purification. And I think the order is really important here. Identity is always given first. We're not working for anything. We're working from something. We're not working for grace or for approval. We're working from grace and from approval. The Father has already spoken identity over us. You're already beloved children of God. Um, and actually, the, the, the preparation before the calling is important, too. God isn't just concerned about using us as pawns on his chessboard to get things done for him. He's more concerned about who we're becoming, who we are, than what we do for him. So I think that's really, really important. Uh, Tim Keller, anytime you talk about idols, you've got to talk about Tim Keller, right? So it would be well, like, crazy not to. So Tim Keller says... Before He actually wrote a, a, a commentary on Judges. So he says this, Before they can throw off the enemies around them, the Midianites, they have to throw off the enemies among them, the false idols of Canaan. This is always the main way that we get renewal in our lives. God will not help us out of our obvious visible problems, our money problems, relationship problems, etc., until we see the idols that are worshiping right beside the Lord. They have to be removed first. Uh, So today we're going to talk about idols. Exposing idols, opposing idols, and recomposing our hearts. Got it? Expose, oppose, recompose. I was trying to work on that rhyme time. Recompose is a little stretch, but, (laughs) you know, I'm still in training, right? I can't quite meet the Tom standard. Uh... So, what are, what are we talking about when we're talking about idols, right? Pagans? Do we really have idols? 
Matt, I've been to your house. I know you got that asterisk pole. Cut it down, man. You got to cut down the, the asterisk pole in your house. The, the bail altar. I'm just kidding. No, what, what's the application? Go home. Rid your houses of idols, everyone. Okay, we're great. No, what is, we don't have idols today. Like, what is, what is the point? Uh, William Stringfellow says, idolatry is pervasive in every time and culture. No less now than yesterday. No less in Washington than Gomorrah. Indeed, it might be argued that contemporary Western humanity is more enslaved to idols than our supposedly less civilized counterparts, precisely because we are, presumably, less ignorant about the world in which we live and because our favorite idols are the familiar, familiar realities of daily life. Religion, work, money, status, patriotism. What is that saying? In other words, it's saying money, making money. That's a great thing, right? Who loves money? Having money is a great thing. Actually, if you're really good at making money, it can be a lot of fun, right? And actually, if you're really good at making money, like you can do a whole lot of good. But if you elevate money in your heart, it's not just money anymore, is it? It's Baal. It's the god of the harvest, Right? Beauty is a great thing. love beauty. But it, what happens when you elevate personal beauty and your pursuit of beauty to the ultimate? What happens if a whole culture does that? No longer just beauty, right? It's Asherah, the goddess of fertility. And that's why the pagans had idols about everything, right? They had idols for sex, idols for money, idols for commerce, idols for crops, idols for rain. Because everything can be an idol. Right? In some ways, they're probably a little bit more honest than we are. At least it's out in the open. Right? Michael Wilcock says, The gods have not changed, for the human nature has not changed. And these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. What does it want? If it is modest, security and comfort and reasonable enjoyment. If ambitious, power and wealth and unbridled self-indulgence. In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires, whether political programs, economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle options, entertainment programs, all having one feature in common. They promise, this is, this is important, they promise what they can, that they can make our lives better then we can make them ourselves. Yet at the same time, they appear amenable to our manipulation so that we can get what we want without losing our independence. Here is the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our hearts. I like to think of idols as spiritual frauds. What's a fraud? Pretending to be something, promising to be something, but it doesn't actually deliver good things that become ultimate things. Good things that become God things. Last quote for a while, I promise. (laughs) Tim Keller again. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. 
an idol is anything more important to you than God. Wow. So as you think today about our heart idols, it can be subtle, can it? What are some examples of things that we can make into, into idols? Control. It's a big one. Any other ideas? Comfort. comfort. Control and comfort. Status. Status. Power. Power. Security. Security? Is that what you said? Yeah. Appearance? Family. Family, yeah. How about our religion? Yeah, (laughs) who said it? (laughs) Religious performance, our morality. Doing the right things, being a godly person. Care about that more than God himself? Yeah, it's so good. It's going to be subtle. You know, it's it's really dangerous (laughs) speaking on idols uh, (laughs) because... That can be pretty heretical, right? Like, here I am telling you, cast out your idols. So this week, I was like, I got to do a big inventory in my heart. <laughs> and I was, I was um, walking in the, in the woods just praying, God, where are my idols? Like, what do you want to do? Like, cleanse my heart. Anyway, a um, little backstory about, uh, about me and, and my wife. Uh, we dated long distance for three years. And uh, she was in New York. I was in Nashville at the time through college. And we had a rule. Uh, that we weren't allowed to miss each other. Uh, someone told us that. Because if you miss each other, that's all you're talking about. You're always talking about the negative, right? And so we just, we under understanding neither of us were allowed to tell each other we missed each other. And uh, we found positive things to talk about. <laughs> and, um, and I was walking in the woods, and I was, I just realized, man, we've been in the city for a year and a half going on two years you know it was a foggy day I was missing the sunshine the warm weather this year has been a weird year in the city the honeymoon season has kind of worn off I was dreaming about other cities I just heard God say you're not allowed to miss other cities it's like I've called you here like I've called you here learn to love this city learn where learn learn find enjoyment in me in the place I've called you. I mean, I think it can be a lot of things. I remember, um, <laughs> I remember uh, in college, I was dating a girl, not Kelsey, sorry, but I just felt like I, <laughs> I felt like I was supposed to like break up with her. I was like, just present. So actually, this is, this is crazy. I actually prayed and I even fasted for like several days about this decision. And I just, in that process, I heard God clearly say, like, you got to break up with her. And I did it. <laughs> like, it took, a, it took me, like, a month or six weeks for actually to go through with it. And what was that? It was, like, an idol of needing to be wanted, of acceptance. Like, I, I enjoyed someone, you know, around me. Uh, I was scrolling through Instagram this week, and a friend that I have from another city, uh, you know, was she uh, kind of sells health and beauty products, but it's not just that. It's kind of this whole business of empowering people. And, and she just wrote, like, I want the Mercedes. And, you know, if she, say, she sells enough, like, she'll get, I want the Mercedes. But more than that, I want what I know God's going to do in me in the pursuit of the Mercedes. Like, because I'm going to have to step out, like, God's going to meet me, and I'm going to get that Mercedes. It's going to be my dream. And I just thought, Ugh. 
It's not like Jesus talks about like surrendering himself, right? Like and going after Jesus, not just the things that he can he can um, do for us. So anyway, I just think it's so like subtle here, right? Bruce Ellis Benson says, not only are we capable of creating idols and worshiping them, we are likewise capable of almost uh, of being almost or completely blind to their existence. Our recognition of idols for what they are is often selective. I think what idols do, they deceive, they distort the truth, and ultimately they end up destroying. But deceive, deception. The problem with deception is, you don't know that you're being deceived (laughs) by definition. And I think this is what idols do. So just let's crowdsource again. What are some ways that you've found in your life that can help you expose those idols? We're talking about the first critical step is exposing. How do you expose them? How do you know what's going on in your heart? Grab some water. Money? Yeah, where you spend your money. Oh, good. Yeah, look at, look at your checkbook or mint. <laughs> Yeah. What do you guys worry about? What you worry about? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. If it gets taken away from you, how do you react? Are you sad? Are you devastated? Or are you angry? I think you feel envious or jealous of others. Yeah, when you look at other people and yeah, can't be glad for them for good things. It's great. Where you spend your time. Look at your bank statement and then your calendar. When you're defensive about something? Mm, yeah. There's a few questions. This is all excellent uh, here. What are you excited that I've just found helpful? What are you excited to tell others about? What do you daydream about? Where does your mind, where do your thoughts go? What are your routines? What's your calendar? What are they leaning towards? You know, maybe even just like, what do you reflexively do, right, when you have some free time? What follows most often when you start a sentence with, I hope? I hope. And this last one, which several of you touched on, what piques your anger, your anxiety, or your fear? That's a good one. If you can pull on that string and see where it's connected to. A few weeks ago, woke up in the middle of the night, our uh, one-and-a-half-year-old Elliot decided that we were getting a little too much sleep. So wanted to uh, make sure we fixed that. And he was just crying and wailing. And I thought I'd be the great husband that I am. And I'd get up so that Kelsey doesn't have to do it. And I go in there. And it's the middle of the night. And I just start getting angry. I just, my voice starts to raise. I start getting stern. I start, I start really like kind of being awful to Elliot. Next thing I know, Kelsey's up. She said, just go to bed. Just go to bed. You're not helping. <laughs> you know, I could, I, could, I, could, I could rationalize that away. That could be just something. It's an anger. It's the middle of the night. It's right. Or I could pull on that string, see what it's attached to. I wouldn't have done it had I not prepared this sermon. I was like, what's going on? 
But actually, it's like, oh, my goodness, like it's an issue of control for me, actually. Control. I want the world the way that I want it. I want my standards and everyone better live and live to it. And if you're waking me in the middle of the night, you are not performing to my standards. You are not being controlled by me in the way that I want you to be controlled in what I want you to behave. And, and actually, then you see that. And then there's so many other tentacles, too. I mean, the way that I plan for the future, the way that I want to be financially independent, the way that I whatever. It's all a matter of like this idol that has crept in of wanting to control things and not ultimately looking to God for my security, for my provision, for my happiness. I've got to control. I've got to control my image. So you think that I'm perfect. I thought I was, there was a friend from Nashville uh, who talked about, he just noticed himself at the kitchen table getting angry and frustrated. Couldn't know why. And, um, and he realized, so he did a little audit, pull on that string, where is it connected to? Well, the dog's barking and the dog outside is making me angry. Why is that making me angry? Oh, it's because my neighbors will probably get frustrated at me and I won't look great to my neighbors. It was in a suburb community. It's like, oh, there's something there that I gotta, gotta work on. <laughs> you know, why, why am I so concerned about what my neighbors think of me that it is causing this anger in me? I just think it's a really important one, those of you who hit on emotions. I mean, all those are super helpful, but like, when you notice those things, what's connected to it? So task number one, expose the idols. Task number two, though, what do you see Gideon do? By the way, another great way to do that is just ask God. <laughs> I, he tends to answer that prayer, <laughs> right? What, what, what is wrong in my heart, God? Or ask your spouse. You know, they can tell you, tell you too. Uh, <laughs> uh, but number two, oppose. Oppose. The background here, I mean... Obviously, Gideon didn't raise up, wasn't uh, reared in a family that only just worshipped these pagan idols. He actually knew the Exodus story. He was brought up in like knowing the Torah and all that. But something else crept in and they didn't cut it down. They adopted these Canaan worship practices. Um, when I stood on the altar, the wedding... Wedding altar about 10 years ago, there's a phrase you repeat, forsaking all others, right? Forsaking all others. What, what would happen if, you know, those girlfriend, that girlfriend that I talked about, if, you know, like I, I decided, you know, I just, I'm just probably going to like keep a few like mementos and notes that she wrote me and I'm just going to keep it you know, on my nightstand. And every time I'm feeling down, I'm just going to pull out that and, you know, like start reading those and soothing myself with that. My marriage is not going to last. <laughs> That's what's going to happen, right? forsaking all others like you got to put that stuff away and i think that's what god is calling gideon in this moment is like what is most important now i think in our culture i think we have been given all sorts of frameworks for managing our idols instead of destroying them there's vocabulary like oh this is just my struggle this is my wound. Oh, it's just my Enneagram number. It's okay. When I'm unhealthy, I go here, right? It's my origin story. Whatever it is. And, and all that stuff's super important. But like actually owning the sin. John Tyson says this. We may be, this is a challenging quote here. We may be one of the most guilty generations in history 
of hearing the invitations of Jesus and then justifying on our own terms why we're not willing to follow. If we're not careful, we will create a kind of Christianity where God understands why we can't follow him. We have such a therapeutic culture rather than one that calls us to obedience. As it's been said in previous generations, people confess sins to priests, but now we confess struggles to therapists. And just to be very clear, therapists are awesome. <laughs> Counselors are awesome. And in fact, a lot of times you need those resources to undercut, uh, figure out what's going on deep inside. I know this summer I've been so helped by people that have offered those probative questions, offered books by counselors. We actually have a fund set up in this church, hallelujah, by someone that's been incredibly generous to help pay for counseling costs for people who can't afford it. We've, we've paid for three peoples already this year. Amazing. So don't hear me. I'm not bashing on counselors. Awesome. But at some point, you've got to like be more bothered by the sin than the struggles. You've got to own that. And say, you know what? It's not just, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. I'm not going to excuse it. And there's a process to go through. Absolutely. But at some point, you got to say, I am going to uproot this thing in my life. I am, I mean, Jesus calls us to some radical things, right? I mean, people want to follow him. Let me bury my father first. No! Let the dead bury their own dead. Whoa. Like, if your eye causes you to sin, like, pluck it out. Cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Jesus, what? <laughs> he, is, he uses radical language when he calls us to follow him. Uh, there was a friend I had um, in Nashville. I got a call from him one day and said, man, I am done with pornography. I'm done with it. And guess what? Here. Uh, I am um, I'm installing a filter on my phone. Uh, and uh, so you're going to get a report every single week with exactly what I looked at. And you need to hold me accountable. Tell me, we're going to go over that report every week. Oh, and by the way, there's also some apps on my phone that I know kind of avoid the filters. I can go to Instagram and those types of things and find things. So I'm deleting all of those apps off my phone. And I've let my wife set a new password for my phone. And she's going to call you and she's going to give you that password. And if I can't get to you or my wife, guess what? I can't download any new apps on my phone. Because that's how serious I am. <laughs> and he did that for like years. He was like, I'm done with it. He got to the point where he's like, I am going to deal with my idols, my sin. I'm going to own it. And listen, it's not that like, I think this God's going to punish you or like there's going to be evil things that happen. It's actually the opposite. Like God, these things we like think are going to lead to the promised land, but they actually lead to wilderness. And God has so much more for us. It's not that he wants to punish us. He wants to show us life and he wants us to get rid of these things, right? Jonah 2.8 says, those who worship worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. Oh my goodness, Sanctuary Church. Like, I don't want us, this church, to forfeit the mercies that God has for us, right? And so I think it's his loving kindness, God, when he calls us out and he exposes those things in our hearts. We, had, you know, we get to the, to the root of them and toss them out. So it'd be just a, well, what you tolerate, I think this is good for us, what you tolerate determines the quality of your life. Interesting. What you tolerate determines the quality of your life. Reflection question maybe for us. What would it look like for you to get radically serious about destroying 
your idols. The last point here, recompose. (laughs) Expose, oppose, and then recompose our hearts. What am I getting at here? When God calls Gideon to tear down the idol, it's not just tearing it down. What else is it? It's actually on the ashes of that idol to erect a new altar to him. When we deconstruct something, it's so important that we also construct something, reconstruct something in its place. Uh, My mind goes to that passage in the New Testament when Jesus kind of is discipling his disciples, teaching his disciples about casting out demons. And he says, hey, be careful. You may cast out a demon. The demon goes away, gets seven of its friends, comes back, trying the place empty, and it's going to make it even worse for that person. And I just think that same principle here is like, it's not just cutting things out of our lives, but it's actually what are we serious about putting into our lives? One of my pet peeves at accountability groups, or it can be, is like, it can look like you just get a bunch of people together. It's like, all right, did you do that thing? No, I didn't do it. Okay, good, you didn't do it. Did you do it? No, okay, good. All right, as long as no one does anything, we're all good. But actually, you know, what accountability should be also is like, what are the things God has put in your life? How do you fill that void? How do you actually point your affections to Jesus? So you don't need the, the idols just become unattractive, right? Like you're, you're basing your life, you're building your life, you're constructing your life in such a way that, that actually anything else but following Jesus isn't, isn't attractive. And I just think the fact is we'll, we will not like just casually drift into holiness. Who here is like just casually drifted into holiness? You felt like I just... I just I had no intention in my life. And then all of a sudden, you know what? Man, I'm doing really good. No, like we live in contested space. Even as Tom opened us up today, like the world wants to form us into its vision. A place like San Francisco is like legendary for like molding people into its image. And if we don't have a strategy, if we're not like intentional about actually counter formation, about like placing Jesus at the center, and making sure like he and him alone is at the root. We're going to be in trouble, right? Uh, John Tyson says, that's why church matters. Western culture is a seductive environment with many cultural idols working on our affections and practices, changing our habits and shaping our minds. The church exists as a counter-formative community to confront our idolatry. So we don't go to church for entertainment. No, what we're really working for here is transformation into the image of Jesus We need weekly opportunities of confession, formation, and scripture to rightly order our hearts and loves and release fresh wonder in our relationship with God. I think it's so important. What would it practically look like? As we rebuild, as we come out of COVID where our lives were, you know, disrupted and we're now thinking about what do our lives look post? Like, how do we build these intentional things into our lives? I was reminded of um, Andrew Wilson. He spoke on one of our Zoom sessions, if you remember. But someone early on in COVID, just, it was an interview. It was like, hey, how are you doing through COVID? And he actually had a really vulnerable response. He said, I'm not good. I said, what? And he's like, actually, you know, if you believe this thing, if you believe scripture, um, like there's commands, like don't forsake meeting together and breaking the bread together and like worshiping together. And like, yeah, we're not doing, we're not doing that right now. And maybe there's seasons for lots of reasons not to do that. But 
I shouldn't be naive to think that's not going to impact my soul. Uh, you know? And uh, I just think that was really insightful. And he's like, these things are so important. Like, they do so much more than just, it's not just getting here and creating a big meeting. And it's actually, this is really important. It's vital for us. And some, some of us guys on Wednesday got up really early, <laughs> too early, <laughs> to go on Bernal Heights Hill and pray together. And I'll tell you a secret. I've never once that I can remember been excited about going to a prayer meeting. <laughs> I've never woken up at 5.30 and said, that sounds great. <laughs> and I get there, and there's something happens. Like, man, Robbie's praying out, and Billy's praying out, and it's just like, oh, yeah. And it invigorates my soul. And I very rarely ever left a prayer meeting regretting having gone, right? And it's because we, we engineer these things that start like forming our loves to Jesus together. An Israeli philosopher says, idolatry is rooted in forgetfulness. Fidelity is rooted in remembering. I just think that's so important. You may have heard the famous illustration. We're, we're coming to a close. But the Bonhoeffer once, in a theologian in Nazi Germany, he formed a seminary called Fickenwald. But it wasn't just any Fickenwald. It wasn't just any seminary. It was like this intense, crazy Seminary, it was right as the Third Reich was rising. And one of his friends saw what was happening. He's like, you're nuts. You're insane. Like, this seminary is intense. Like, what are you doing? And he hiked him up the hill, so the legend goes. And on that hill, he saw an encampment of Nazi, tra- tra- Nazi training camp. And he could also see the location where Fickenwald's seminary is being formed. And he looks, and he just pointed at the Nazi camp, and he said, or actually pointed at the seminary, and he said, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. And I think Sanctuary Church, this must be stronger than, than that, right? That's why it's so important. So again, no guilt, no pressure, whatever. I just think it's an invitation to life. Jesus is saying, hey, what you think may bring you to the promised land is really leading you to the wilderness. Come after me. All right. So we're going to close here. Um, just one final encouragement. When we started here, someone brought up, I mean, Gideon being called to tear down his father's idol. I mean, that was probably the most horrific thing that God could ask him to do. I mean, it was, he went into it probably knowing that he would likely die. It was intense. And some of you, the things maybe the Holy Spirit is just highlighting. I know in my life, it's like, oh, so much but it's a good right it's like oh yeah there is I do need to deal with that but actually what happened to Gideon did he die no actually I think you have to read between the lines here but I think his father actually stood up for him and then his father gave him a new name which basically means bail fighter <laughs> actually the, the thing that he was probably most scared the thing that likely caught would cause a death actually brought redemption probably to his whole family like think about the legacy that happened because Gideon was obedient in that think about the change in trajectory of his family there actually is redemption on the other side of that I think about Jesus he had a pretty good life in heaven (laughs) he was with the father and he gave that up he came to earth he surrendered Everything On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That most intimate connection he had was broken. 
He took on our sin. But yet, that very instant was redemption for us all. He was obedient, even death on the cross. It says in Hebrews 10, for the joy that was set before him. It was his joy he endured the cross so that we could have life. So if God is calling you to something, to a death, to give up something, I just want to encourage you. There is redemption on the other side of that. You can trust Jesus. He went for it. And we're not earning anything, right? We're not earning anything. Identity has already been spoken over us. This is our chance to respond and be formed into the the image that God wants us to be. So I guess just Tom's going to come up and uh, play for just a minute. And I just want to give us some space to ask those questions. When you scan the terrain of your own heart, where do you see the idols that have been erected? What needs to happen in your life to destroy those idols? And very practically, what does it look like to erect altars of worship? Tom's going to play.